You liked my joke. You I've never this. felt more uncomfortable. podcast where we explore love dating and relationships and why they suck i'm Naomi I, like guy. The, I like the visceral energy you brought to that <laughs> i'm joel guy and today well every day when we start out our podcast we start with trying a new drink and you know what we're going back to our roots today we're going back to a trader joe's drink joel what are we trying out today we're trying the sparkling tropical lemonade which would probably have been better during a summer month but i backlogged so many drinks <laughs> We are forced to try it now. Okay, it smells like lemonade, smells tropical. The last tropical lemonade we had was not very good. Which one was that? No, sorry, the last sparkling lemonade we had. Which one was that? It just tasted like watered-down lemonade. How did you do that so quickly? Mine is still, like, going. I like it. It has, like, hints of lychee. Am I crazy? Guava juice and pineapple. Oh, I'm getting a Passion fruit. Okay. Oh, this is good. Definitely would be better in the summer months, but mm-hmm. I'm I'm picking up what it's trying to put down. Exactly. This yeah. this would be good in like a cocktail. Um, this would be good in like Ooh. a like sitting next to a pool, reading a book. You know what? This kind of reminds me of the the porn star martini that I like. There's a common drink you can get it at essentially any bar that does cocktails, craft cocktails, and it's like a passion fruit based drink with vodka, and they put a shot of Champagne on the side. Ooh. Yeah. Exotic. Yeah. Naomi, I want to talk today about dating. Okay. We do that every week. We really don't. Our (laughs) listeners will tell us we We really don't. We try to do that every week. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So we've discussed a couple of books on our podcast. Yes. uh, Several of which have gone over kind of very generally the development of marriage and love, both the concepts and then like the structural institutions throughout human history. Sure. And I've had a lot of questions. Okay. Because I feel they're so broad brushing. There's a lot of nitty gritty elements of how these sort of cultural attitudes developed that um, are never fully explained. And so for a while, I've been looking for a book that explained the development of U.S. dating culture. Yeah. Uh, There's a lot of, like, weird peculiarities in how people in the modern realm expect to be courted, uh, what what they're looking for in relationships, um, what their parents, you know, chastise them for and encourage them. Still do. I still do. <laughs> and I did finally find that book. Okay. Um, I think I brought this up on a podcast maybe like four or five months ago because I'd heard it referenced and I purchased a copy and I finally worked through it. And holy cow, this book is incredible. I love it. It is so detailed. It is so rigorously researched. It has so many references that support the author's case. It's very much an anthropological deep dive into the development of U.S. dating culture between the like, the late 19th century and like the 1970s. So the age old question, would you recommend this book to others? Yes. I don't even think I've said its title yet, but Hey, you downloaded this episode. So you already know that it is from <laughs> the front porch to the back seat, uh, courtship in 20th century America written by Beth L. Bailey. I could not find a lot of information about Beth L. Bailey. I believe she's still alive because this book was actually published in the late 1980s. Uh, but she's oh. done a number of deep dives into world war two Uh, She did a book, which I'm really interested in, called Sex in the Heartland, talking about how, like, people in small towns in America started changing their sexual attitudes, which, like, changed all of, like, dating and sex discourse in America in the early uh, 20th century. Um, She did a book on sex in Hawaii during World War II, and she also did this overview, which is, like all of middle-class white people's behavior during the early 20th century. I have to ask, um, we did a uh, a book club report on Men Are From Mars, and that was written in, what, the 1990s? And you said that was outdated at the time. How do you think that this book written in the 1980s is is more... It doesn't seem proscriptive. Okay. It, It doesn't seem to be saying this is proper behavior and this is improper. Okay. It's very much written in academic anthropological sense where she's just like, this is what happened. And there's no sense of judgment. There's no sense of valuing certain things higher than another. Okay. And I think that's really helpful because there's a lot of potential lessons and takeaways about modern dating culture 
that I think you can derive from this book and the fact that she hasn't, you know, come in and said, well, in my opinion, we yeah. should have stuck with this makes it a lot easier to recommend to people. Okay. Yeah, I, I think that my biggest issue with Men from Mars, Women from Venus is, well, first off, it's all gibberish. I have no idea <laughs> if the actual research was done and whether or not it has any basis in reality. But the second thing was the author was like, this applies to all men and all women. Yeah. Uh, except for the, some women who have slightly more testosterone. I will say this. Reading this book made me realize where a lot of the attitudes that both the author of Men Are From Mars and Steve Harvey come from in their books. It explains so much about their attitudes because it turns out that pretty much every form of media in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s was parroting the exact same talking points. Yeah. There is very little kind of pushback against the attitudes about like dating and sex and culture. Certainly like people had different opinions, but in the most popular publications of the day, they were not being expressed. So that's fascinating. And I feel a little mean for being so, so picky to Steve. No, I don't. Um, (laughs) You know what I realized the other day? I was talking to her father and I realized that Dr. Phil is just the white version of Steve Harvey. Maybe a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever seen them in the same room? Oh my God, you're right. Yeah. They're the same person. They're the same person. That's our new podcast conspiracy theory. Yeah. Uh, we're going to do a review of every single Dr. Phil episode and talk about the horrible misogyny he perpetuates. I'd prefer not to. Okay, that's That would fair. just make me really depressed. Yeah, but the, my, my, my issue with Steve Harvey is even if he was raised with all these like cultural assumptions, he still is like, well, I'm a multi-millionaire slash billionaire who's cheated on my wife multiple times. I know everything there is to know about relationships and writes this incredibly popular dating self-help book that contains all sorts of like sexist assumptions that he says apply to all of society. Yeah. So again, it's kind of going beyond your knowledge. It's making a lot of broad brushing generalizations. Yeah. Um, that's not to say you can't make a lot of broad brushing sweeping generalizations about like dating a culture. But when one of them is like women be more stupid, I feel you've kind of stepped over the line. Yes. So do you have any questions about this book before we get into it? Or should I just jump in and no, give kind of the intro of why the author thinks it's important? I think I've asked all my questions. Okay. So for our listeners, this is, again, a sort of a comprehensive overview. The author discusses how, like, courtship changed, how dating evolved from, like, more traditional arrangements of meeting people. The author talks about how World War II played a huge, huge role in people's understanding of relationships and what to expect from them. The author talks about how, like, dating started becoming this almost, like, commodity-based process as U.S. markets began to emerge after the war. She talks about sex and how people's attitudes on sex changed over time. And then she kind of wraps up the book by talking about how masculinity and femininity ideas in the 19th and 20th century played a big role in how people approached relationships. And so, unfortunately, Sigmund Freud and Darwin play a key role in how Americans thought about all this stuff. Okay, I fully expect... Naomi's jaw is going to be on the ground for a lot of this. Okay. I know I was sharing anecdotes with my significant other when I was reading this, and she was going WTF multiple times. It's pretty spectacular. I would strongly recommend this book. We will put a link of places to purchase it online. There's a lot I go into in this you know, multi-part episode series, um, and there's still even more I had to just cut out because there wasn't enough time. So please buy a copy. Go find a copy at the library if you're at all interested in this topic. So let's talk about the book, Naomi. Okay. This book is about America's traditional system of courtship, the dating system that flourished between about 1920 and 1965. It examines the origins of dating, how the system came to be, and what it replaces, and what it replaced. It details the rituals and conventions that shaped the courtship of several generations of American youth. It analyzes the understandings and beliefs on which dating was based, and shows the connections of private acts of courtship to larger changes in American society. And finally, this work offers a judgment. While some of the fruits of America's sexual revolution have not been sweet, we cannot simply look to traditional courtship for remedies. Just because the present is not satisfactory does not mean that the past was better. Certainly we should seek our usable past, but to find answers to the current problems of American courtship, we need to go not backward, but forward. In 20th century America, courtship became more and more a private act conducted in the public world. This intimate business, as it evolved into dating, increasingly took place in public places removed by distance and by anonymity, anonymity, I know that word, from the sheltering and controlling contexts of home and local community. Keeping company in the family parlor is replaced by dining and dancing, coke dates, movies, parking. 
In the 20th century, youth increasingly moved their courtship from the private to the public sphere. Can you imagine how that might play any role in how dating culture developed? Because you gave, what was it? Was it love a history? Was it marriage a history? It was marriage a history. Marriage a history. Talking about like courtship arrangements. Yeah. And what was kind of the big thing in early marriage courtship? Well, the big thing was you called upon your suitor. Or you were called upon by your suitor. And you weren't able to make that connection. They were kind of like, whoever proposed to you first, you made that decision. This book slightly disagrees with that. I, I think you, you have the general idea of what it was. Uh, this book has almost a slightly more feminist take on it and says that women had a little more control than we give them credit for. But I, I think I can understand both perspectives. Obviously, even if women have discretion, they're still like influenced by their parents about you know the best person to marry for business arrangements or whatever. We also weren't there. so This is also true. Yeah. American courtship was affected by changes in relations between men and women in larger society, as women took on new roles in the public world. The rules and rituals governing dating, and for that matter marriage, had been based on the concept as man as provider. He paid and she didn't. The assumption was, he worked and he didn't. But as more and more women enter the job market, earning their own money and achieving the limited autonomy that comes with economic independence, ooh, that's a sentence, limited autonomy that comes with economic independence that has absolutely no relevance to my current life. Conventions based on the Manus Provider model clash more and more with the realities of men and women's lives. This dissonance produced tensions, which were often manifest in struggles to gain or retain control in a courtship system. Many specific conventions of courtship behavior were concerned with controlling these power structures with denying change. There's perhaps no force so strong in the public conventions of 20th century American courtship as nostalgia, the lure of an imagined past. So one big thing that's going to be brought up is there were wider changes in society that influenced like how people thought of dates. And a lot of people in culture would often look back and be like, things were better before women had expectations of things. But also there's some weird stuff. Like there are points when adults were like, things were better when kids were dating 56 women in high school, not just one. Yeah. It, it, it gets a little strange in sort of the things that adults are prioritizing and, you know, this, this better past of their youth they look back on. The new system of courtship privilege competition and worried about how to control it, it valued consumption, it presented an economic model of scarcity and abundance as a guide to personal affairs. The rules of the market were consciously applied, the vocabulary of economic exchange defined the acts of courtship. That is not to say that in the 20th century, for the first time, courtship was understood through its relation to the marketplace. Through much of Western history, courtship was firmly based on the reality of the economy, and the definition of courtship as a system of exchange was common in many cultures. Even in the era of romantic love, writers such as Jane Austen vividly described the marketplace of courtship. However, in 19th century America, public discussions of courtship commonly drew on metaphors of home and family. One thing the author does talk about is in 20th century America, the new system of dating added new stages to courtship and multiplied the number of partners and individuals likely to have before marriage. Uh, all of this premarital experience necessarily had an impact on the final stages of mate selection. So by her definition, the unattached flirt, the engaged college seniors, the eighth grade steadies, and the mismatched couple on a blind date are all engaging in the act of courtship. Uh, she also concedes multiple times that this is like a study and analysis based mostly on middle class people. It's based on, you know, analyses of popular media that would be consumed by primarily white individuals who are in what, and a lot of our younger listeners aren't going to believe this, there was formerly a thing known as the middle class in America. I was literally just about to say that. I was yeah. like, there was a middle class? It was between the, uh, the, 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 the lower class and the people who live in the, the diamond skyscrapers. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so she's saying it's kind of everybody mixed up in there, but again, it's a very specific type of person. She makes references to like other groups, but her primary analysis is based on that. That's not to say that like other groups didn't draw inspiration. It's just that she can only really talk intelligently about one main group. What weight the conventions of courtship had came reinforced through repetition. The rules were constantly reiterated. The sameness of the message was overwhelming. Popular ma magazines, advice and etiquette books, texts used in high school and college marriage courses, professional journals of the educators who taught the courses, all formed a remarkably coherent universe. This universe of convention merely meshed neatly with the systems of convention that operated on college campuses throughout the United States. And she references, like, all these different magazines and journals and periodicals. Uh, there are these things called magazines, back when people used to read. Um, oh, they're not just signs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, no, I think a lot of people 
forget like how prevalent newspapers and magazines were yeah. where you know you might get like six to eight magazines a month coming in before the internet the last time i bought a magazine was when biden won the election and i was like this is history and i bought it and now i'm like that kind of sucks that i bought that like i spent like five bucks on it you're gonna make ten dollars in 15 years at a flea market yeah exactly when ten dollars is less five dollars due to yeah. inflation <laughs> Okay, so she gives all these caveats in her intro. That's like the general overview that I already described. Let's talk about her discussion of how calling changed to courting. Okay. So one day, the 1920s story goes, a young man asked a city girl if he might call on her. We know nothing else about the man or the girl, only that when he arrived, she had her hat on. Oh. It's not much of a story to us, but any American born before 1910 would have gotten the punchline. That was actually a joke, Naomi. She had her hat on. Those five words were rich in meaning to early 20th century Americans. The hat signaled that she expected to leave the house. He came on a call expecting to be received in her family's parlor to talk to meet her mother, perhaps to have some refreshments or to listen to her play the piano. She expected a date to be taken out somewhere and entertained. Uh... He ended up spending four weeks savings fulfilling her expectations. So in the early 20th century, this new style of courtship, dating had begun to supplant the old. Born primarily of the limits and opportunities of urban life, dating had almost completely replaced the old system of calling by the mid-1920s, and by doing so, had transformed American courtship. It moved it into the public world, relocating it from family parlors and community events to restaurants, theaters, and dance halls. At the same time, it removed them from the implied supervision of the private sphere to the public sphere. The transition from calling to dating was as complete as it was fundamental. By the 1950s and 60s, social scientists who studied American courtship found it necessary to remind the American public that dating was a recent American innovation and not a traditional or universal custom. Some of the many commentators who wrote about courtship believed dating was the best thing that had ever happened to relations between the sexes. Others blamed the dating system for all of the problems of American youth and American marriage. But virtually everyone portrayed the system dating replaced as infinitely simpler, sweeter, more innocent, and more graceful. Hard-headed social scientists waxed sentimental about the horse and buggy days, when a young man's offer of a ride home from church was tantamount to a proposal, and when young men came calling in the evenings and courtship took place safely within the warm bosom of the family. The courtship which grew out of the sturdy social roots of the 19th century, one author wrote, comes through us It comes through to us for what it was, a gracious ritual with clearly defined roles for men and women in which everyone knew the measured music and the steps. What do you think about that? I think it's interesting that it was like such a quick change from from calling the courting. Mm -hmm. And what I'm I'm so confused on how exactly that happened, but it makes sense in a way. Keep in mind the theme of urbanization. Yeah. As things move from, you know, the United States being a primarily agrarian society to cities development. And that trend happens a lot during the early 20th century into the 19th. So let's talk a little bit about the culture of calling. If people haven't listened to our episode where we dig into this in detail. Uh The conventions of courtship as set forth in the national magazines and the popular books of etiquette were an important part of the middle class code of manners. Conventional courtship centered on calling, a term that could describe a range of activities. The young man from the neighboring farm who spent the evening sitting on the front porch of the farmer's daughter was paying a call. And so was the society man who could judge his prospects by whether or not the card he presented at the front door from the lady of of his choice at home. The middle-class arbiters of culture, however, aped and elaborated the society version of the call. Outside of courtship, the sort of calling was primarily a woman's activity, for women largely controlled social life. Women designated a day or days at home to receive callers. On other days, they paid or returned calls. The caller would present her card to the maid, common even in moderate-income homes until the World War I era, who answered the door and would be admitted or turned away with some excuse. The caller, who regularly was not received, quickly learned the limits of her family's social status. And Lady at Home, thus in some measure, protected herself and her family from the social confusion and pressures engendered by the mobility and expansiveness of late 19th century America. In this system, the husband, though generally determining the family's status, was represented by his wife and was thereby excused from the social status ritual. Unmarried men, however, were subject to this female-controlled system. I had no idea. Like, I under, I, I know about the calling cards mm-hmm. and the dance cards because we talked about that in the other, in the, in the history of date or history of marriage. Yeah. But I had no idea that it was like, I knew that it was sort of female driven, but I assumed that when it was 
said female driven that it was actually a man's like yeah. way of doing things and then like, the women took it upon themselves obviously actually... men you know play a big role in this because they're expected to be the providers but you can still sort of treat it as a feminist thing insofar as women have a lot of autonomy in who they receive yeah there, there's very much an element of choice at play and, and there's all sorts of rituals embodied in this that people don't fully understand. There's all sorts of art, magazines and articles where people are like, I don't fucking understand like how to do a yeah. call. And, yeah. and so there was a system of learned behaviors people had to adapt in order to meet like complicated social expectations. The call itself was a complicated event. A myriad of rules governed everything. The proper amount of time between invitation and visit, a fortnight or less, whether or not refreshments should be served, not if one belonged to a fashionable or semi-fashionable circle, but outside of smart groups in cities like New York and Boston, girls might serve ice drinks with little cakes or tiny cups of coffee or hot chocolate and sandwiches. Chaperonage, the first call must be made on daughter and mother, but excessive chaperonage would indicate to the man that his attentions were unwelcome, appropriate topics of conversation, the man's interests, but never too personal, how leave should be taken, on no account should the woman accompany her caller to the door, nor stand talking while he struggles into his coat. Each of these measured steps, as the mid-20th century author would nostalgically call them, was a test of suitability, breeding, and background. Advice columns and etiquette books emphasized that those are the manners of any well-bred person, and conversely implied that deviations revealed a lack of breeding. However, around the turn of the century, many people who did lack this narrow breeding aspired to politeness. Advice columns in women's magazines regularly printed questions from Country Girl and Ignoramus on the fine points of calling etiquette. Young men must have felt the pressure of girls' expectations, for they wrote to the same advisors with questions about calling. In 1907, Harper's Bazaar ran a major article titled Etiquette for Men, explaining the ins and outs of the calling system. In the first decade of the 20th century, this rigid system of calling was connection not only of the respectable, but also of those who aspired to respectability. I have a question. Mm-hmm. These, like, guides, did they mention in this book if they cost anything? Oh, yeah, yeah. These would be things you'd buy on, like, a street corner at newspaper so stand. So, or... what happens if you can't afford them? Interesting question. I think I'm going to answer it in a few minutes. Okay. Uh, the general thing you should understand is this is a system designed for... The upper Middle classes. class, upper yes. class people. Yes. More for upper class, somewhat for middle class. You know, if you can afford to have a parlor, if you can afford yeah. to have a place you can host people. And if you can't, well, then you may have to come up with something else. And that's really where dating starts to evolve from. I was reminded when reading this that there's a lot of customs in dating nowadays that are also not readily apparent. Yes. In the same way as you might struggle to figure out the etiquette of, you know, how to call upon someone in topics of conversation, you may find it difficult to figure out an appropriate venue to have a first date and things to talk about on the first date. Yeah. And so I think that same confusion still exists in our modern dating realm. If anything, it's worse because it seems to me that calling was limited to people of a certain, like, economic, social skin tone background yes and nowadays with dating culture you have people from all manner of places and backgrounds and personalities and dispositions kind of mixing yeah and i'm not saying that's a bad thing i'm just saying it's much more difficult if you're interacting with someone whose family has like certain cultural attitudes and preferences and knowing you know how to approach that and so one big question i have is in the modern world how do you sort of facilitate those conversations? Because there certainly can be attraction between people from two very dis- dis- different backgrounds, but what is the etiquette for figuring out what your partner is expecting, what their family is expecting? Um, you obviously so have to watch Crazy Rotations. It's like a guide. Okay. So you asked this question. Um, yes. What happens if you don't have money to afford these guides? Yes. Well, what happens if you don't have money, period? Yes. There's an answer to that. The practice of dating was a response of the lower classes to the pressures and opportunities of urban industrial America, just as calling was a response of the upper stratas. These strict conventions of calling enabled the middling and upper classes to protect themselves from some of the intrusions of urban life, to screen out some of the effects of social and geographical mobility in late 19th century America. Those without the money and security to protect themselves from the pressures of urban life or to control the overwhelming opportunities it offered adapted to the new conditions much more directly. Dating, which to the privileged and protected would seem a system of increased freedom and possibility, stemmed originally from a lack of opportunities. Calling, or even just visiting, was not a practical system for young families, uh, young people whose families live crowded into one or two rooms, you know, tenant housing. For even the most established or independent working class girls, the parlor and the piano often didn't exist. 
some factory girls struggled to find a way to receive callers, and the Ladies' Home Journal approvingly reported the case of six girls, workers in a box factory, who had formed a club and pooled part of their wages to pay the janitress of a tenement house to let them use their front room two evenings a week. It had a piano. One of the girls explained their system. We ask the boys to come when they like and spend the evening. We haven't any place at home to see them, and I hate seeing them on the street. So that's one answer to the calling system, okay. is creating, like a dating union, a dating collective, and renting spaces. But many other working girls, however, couldn't have done this even if they wanted to. They had no extra wages to pool, or they had no notions of middle-class respectability. Some, especially girls of ethnic families, were kept secluded, chaperoned according to the customs of the old country. Can I ask you something? Mm -hmm. You mentioned, I think in the last quote, that there was a certain number of chaperones that would give the man the idea that he was not welcome there any longer. Yeah. What is too many chaperones on a date? Yeah, they really don't answer that question. It, I would <laughs> it's assume like if the be, whole family goes so, out with yeah, you. Yeah, I'd assume it'd be similar to chaperoning, where you might have someone accompany you, like a mother or a father on yeah, the first date. Sister, yeah. There may be someone on the second date, but they'd be expected to linger back if the affections were returned. Yeah. Or alternatively, they might be like, "Hey, there will be no second date." They, you know, make the boundaries very, very clear. Yeah. So some, especially girls of ethnic families, were kept secluded, chaperoned according to the customs of the old country. But many others fed the squalor, drabness, and crowdedness of their homes to seek amusement and intimacy elsewhere. And a good time increasingly became identified with public places and commercial amusements, making young women whose wages would not even cover the necessities of life dependent on men's treats. Still, many poor and working-class couples did not so much escape from the home as they were pushed from it. These couples courted on the streets, sometimes at a cheap dance hall or eventually at the movies. They were not respectable places, and women could enter them only so far as they themselves were not considered respectable. Respectable young women did, of course, enter the public world, but their excursions into the public were cushioned. Public courtship of middle-class, upper-class youth was at least supposed to be chaperoned. Those with money and social position went to private dances with carefully controlled guest lists to later parties where they were a private group within the public. Um, so, as rebels would soon complain, the supervision of society made the private parlors seem almost free by contrast. Women who were not respectable did not have relative freedom of action, but the trade-off was not necessarily a happy one for them. The negative factors were important, but dating rose equally from the possibilities offered by urban life. Pri privileged youth came to see the possibility of privacy in the anonymous public, in the excitement and freedom the city offered. They looked to lower-class models of freedom, to those beyond the constraints of respectability. As a society girl informed the readers of the Ladies' Home Journal in 1914, nowadays it is considered smart to go to the low order of dance halls, and not only be a looker-on, but also to dance among all sorts and conditions of men and women. Nowadays, when we enter a restaurant and dance place, it is hard to know who is who. In 1907, the same magazine had warned unmarried women never to go alone to a public restaurant with any man, even a relative. There was no yeah. impropriety in the act, the advisor conceded, but it still lays women open to misunderstanding and to being classed with women of undesirable reputation by strangers present. Rebellious and adventurous young people sought that confusion, and the gradual loosening of proprieties they engendered helped to change courtship. Young men and women went out into the world together, enjoying a new kind of companionship and the intimacy of a new kind of freedom from adult supervision. Interesting. So this is a very strange trend. I, well, I don't know. Given American history, maybe it's not so crazy. In the same way that, like, the African-American culture in America developed, like, most music of the yeah. 1940s through 60s that was considered popular by white middle class people. Poor people didn't have parlors. Poor people couldn't afford to host people and were yes. probably, you know, ashamed of their crowded tenement homes. So they go out dating on the town. People who are upper class start seeing this and are like, well, we can go out in the world, but we don't even have that freedom, right? Uh -huh. We're expected to go to these, you know, fancy private dances and, you know, balls, and we have to abide by a certain sense of etiquette. We have no privacy because even at these outdoor public spaces, we're now, we you know, have a hundred eyes on us and we have to act even more uh, polite and demure than we might have <laughs> in a, um, you know, much more limited capacity in a parlor. So, their response is to start adapting some of the things that the lower class were doing, going out by themselves. And that change comes very quickly, as, uh -huh. as you saw from 1907 to 1914. Then middle class people start latching onto the trends of the upper class people yes. and start doing the same thing. Lower class, upper class, middle class. Interesting. It's a very interesting development, yeah. 
Uh, so there were still limits between 1904 and 1907. Ladies Home Journal advisors repeatedly insisted that a girl should not go out the young man until he had called at her home. In the 1920s, Radcliffe girls were furnished with a list of approved restaurants in which they could dine with the young men. <laughs> Some were acceptable only before 7.30 p.m. Others clearly still posed a threat to reputations. These limits and conditions, however, show that young men and women of courting age were expected to go out. The restrictions were not attempts to stop dating, only to control it. Between 1890 and 1925, dating and practice in a name had gradually, almost imperceptibly, become a universal custom in America. By the 1930s, it had transcended its origins. Middle America associated dating with neither upper-class rebellion nor the urban lower classes. The rise of dating was usually explained, quite simply, by the invention of the automobile. Cars had given youth mobility and privacy and had brought about the system. This explanation, perhaps not consciously, but definitely not coincidentally, revised history. The automobile certainly contributed to the rise of dating as a national practice, especially in rural and suburban areas, but it was simply accelerating and extending a process already well underway. Once its origins were located firmly in middle America, however, and not in the extremes of urban upper and lower class life, dating had become an American institution. So a lot of people do attribute the idea that automobiles rise, like created American date culture and you know, did everything else like suburbs. Um, but clearly these roles were already being established and they just helped. Do, do you buy that? Um, I would buy in a sense because like, especially growing up in Arizona, you kind of like have to have a car to do mm-hmm. anything. And so just knowing like there was no globalization and there was no, like, like there weren't big city, there were cities, but like there were more sub suburb more like everything was more spread out yeah, than yeah, it is yeah. today. Wow, that was a long way of saying it. And I would definitely say that it would obviously make it easier to date if you had a car and you mm-hmm. were going places. If you were able to call on your misses and say, "Hey, like, let's go out and go on a date like next weekend." And yeah, but obviously, like, it's accelerating a trend in high gear. It's not so much as creating a new one from scratch because it'd be very hard imagining a world in which courtship existed nothing changed for a while cars are suddenly invented and everyone's like yeah women go out into cars where you can travel 100 miles from home in a single evening i have no concerns i don't think they have a range like that you understand what i'm saying yeah i understand what you're saying okay so one of the things we talked about when we were discussing the system of calling was how women had control over the situation yes and dating changes that Dating not only transformed the outward modes and conventions of American courtship, it also changed the distribution of control and power in courtship. One change was generational. The dating system lessened parental control and gave young men and women more freedom. The dating system also shifted power from women to men. Calling, either as a simple visit or as an elaborate late 19th century ritual, gave women a large portion of control. First of all, courtship took place within a girl's home, in women's sphere, as it was called in the 19th century, or at entertainments largely devised and presided over by women. Dating moved courtship out of the home into man's sphere, the world outside. Female controls and conventions lost much of their power outside women's spheres. And while many of the conventions of female propriety were restrictive and repressive, they'd allow women, young women and their mothers, a great deal of immediate control over courtship. The transfer of spheres thoroughly undercut that control. Second, in the calling system, the women took initiative. Etiquette books and columns were adamant on that point. It was the girl's privilege to ask a young man to call. Furthermore, it was highly improper for the man to take the initiative. In 1909, a young man wrote to the Ladies' Home Journal, asking if I can call upon a young woman who I greatly admire, although she had not given me permission. Would she be flattered on my eagerness, even to the setting aside of conventions, or would she think me impertinent? The writer, Miss Kingsland, replied, I think you would risk just her displeasure and frustrate your object of finding favor with her. Softening the prohibition, she then suggested an invitation might be secured through a mutual friend. She had been even stricter two years before, insisting that a man must not go beyond a very evident pleasure in women's society by way of suggestions. Another advisor, the lady from Philadelphia, put a more positive light on the situation, noting that nothing forbids a man to show by his manner that her acquaintance is pleasing to him, and thus perhaps suggested an invitation to call would be welcome. Now contrast these strictures with advice on dating etiquette from the 1940s and 50s. An advice book for men and women warns that women who try to usurp the right of boys to choose their own dates will ruin a good dating career. Fair or not, it is the way of life. From the Stone Age, when men chased and captured their women, comes the yin of boy to do the pursuing. You will control your impatience, therefore, and respect the time-honored custom of boys to take the first step. One teen advice book from the 1950s told girls never to take the initiative with a boy, even under the pretext such as asking about homework. Boys are jealous of their masculine prerogative of taking the initiative. Another said simply, 
don't ask. And still another recounted an anecdote about a girl who asked her boy for a date to the Saturday night dance. He cut her off mid-sentence and walked away. The absolute reversal of roles almost necessarily accompanied courtship's move from women's sphere to man's sphere. Although the convention setters commended the custom of women's initiative because it allowed greater exclusivity, the custom was based on a broader principle of etiquette. The host or hostess issued any invitation, the guest did not invite himself or herself. An invitation to call was an invitation to visit in a woman's home. An invitation to go out on a date, on the other hand, was an invitation in a man's world, not simply because dating took place in the public sphere, though that was part of it, but because dating moved courtship into the world of the economy. Money, men's money, was at the center of the dating system. Thus, on two counts, men became the hosts and assumed the control that came with the position. There was some confusion caused by this reversal of initiative, especially during the 20 years or so when going out and calling coexisted as systems. The unfortunate young man in the apocryphal story at the start, for example, had asked the city girl if he might call on her, so perhaps she was conventionally correct to assume he meant to play the host. Confusions generally were sorted out around the issue of money. One young woman, Henrietta L., wrote to Ladies Home Journal to inquire whether a girl might suggest to a friend going to any entertainment or place of amusement where there'll be any expense to the young man. The reply was, never, under any circumstances. The advisor explained the invitation to go out must always come from the man, for he was the one responsible for the expense. The same advisor insisted the woman must always invite the man to call. Clearly, she realized money was the central issue. Now, the centrality of money in dating had serious implications for courtship. Not only did money shift control and initiative to men by making them the hosts, it led contemporaries to see dating as a system of exchange best understood through economic analogies or as an economic system pure and simple. Of course, people did recognize in marriage a similar economic dimension the man undertakes to support his wife in exchange for fulfilling various roles important to him, but marriage was a permanent relationship. Dating was situational, with no long-term commitments implied, and when a man in a highly visible ritual spent money on a woman in public, it seemed much more clearly an economic act. Here's something that's interesting. In fact, the term date was associated with the direct economic exchange of prostitution at an early time. A prostitute called Mamie, in letters written to a middle-class benefactor and friend in the late 19th century, described how men made dates with her. And a former waitress turned prostitute described the process to the Illinois Senate community on Vice this way. You wait on a man and he smiles at you. You see a chance to get a tip and you smile back. Next day he returns and you try harder than ever to please him. Then right away he wants to make a date and, you offer, and he offers you money and presents if you'll be a good fellow and go out with him. These men quite clearly were buying sexual favors, but the occasion of the exchange was called a date. Dating like prostitution made access to women directly dependent on money. Quite a, men did, a few men did not hesitate to complain about the going rate of exchange. In a 1925 Collier's article, Why Men Won't Marry, a 24-year-old university graduate exclaimed, Get married? Why, I can't afford to go out with any of the sort of girls with whom I'd like to associate. He explained, When I was in college, getting an allowance uh, from home, I used to know lots of nice girls. Now that I'm on my own, I can't even afford to see them. If I took a girl to the theater, she'd have to sit in the gallery, and if we went to supper afterward, we'd be at a soda counter, and if we rode home, we'd have to be in one of the streetcars. As he presents it, the problem is solely financial. The same girls who were glad to go with him when he had money would not see him when, would not see him when he lacked their price. And nice girls cost a lot. In dating, though, the exchange was less direct and less clear than in prostitution. One author in 1924 made sense of it this way. In dating, he reasoned a man is responsible for all expenses. The woman is responsible for nothing. She contributes only her company. Of course, the man contributes his company too, but since he must add money to balance the bargain, his company must be worth less than hers. Thus, according to the economic understanding, she is selling her company to him. In his eyes, dating didn't even involve an exchange. It was a direct purchase. The moral subtlety, subtleties of a woman's position in dating, the author concluded, were complicated even further by the fact that young Wynne, discovering that she must be bought, liked to buy her when they happened to have the money. Yet another young man the same year publicly called a halt to such promiscuous buying. Writing anonymously in American Magazine, the man estimated that as a buyer of feminine companionship for the previous five years, he had invested $20 a week, a grand total of over $5,000. Finally, he wrote, he had realized that there is a point at which any commodity, even such delightful commodity as feminine companionship, costs more than it is worth. In all of these analyses, the men are complaining about the new dating system, lamenting the passing of a mythic good old days when a man without a quarter in his pocket could call on a girl and not be embarrassed. The days for a woman had to be bought. In recognizing so clearly the economic model in which dating operated, they also clearly saw the model was a bad one in purely economic terms. The exchange was not equitable. The commodity was overpriced, and men were operating at a loss. Interesting. Dating is prostitution. Yeah. It is an interesting analogy. Um, and we will get into that later, but there's expectations set up when men have complete control over the process. 
Because it's like, hey, I'm spending a lot of money on you. You're getting a fun experience. You get to be seen by your friends having a great time on the town. What am I getting in exchange? And so there comes this expectation that women will reward men with kisses and favors if they go out on dates. Um, And if men pressured women into sexual activity as a result of this, it was, you know, kind of considered to be women's fault for not, you know, rebuking their advances. But then again, women are considered ruined at this time if they do um, partake in premarital sex. There's so many ways to have sex without having premarital sex, Naomi. This book goes into so much detail. Did you um, recently, our podcast follows, to give a little background information, our podcast (laughs) account follows an account called BYU Virgins. And I recently happened upon a short little snippet of information that the BYU Virgins um, account put out called A Las Vegas Weekend. And um, apparently there is a um, subset of groups of individuals that go to BYU and take the journey from Utah to um, Las Vegas over a weekend, get married, have sex, and then um, leave and don't consider it a legal marriage. So they either get it annulled or they forget that they even got married. And technically they're having sex within the confines of marriage, but they're not. I don't know if that's a real practice. It sounds like something people would do. The thing is, the BYU Virgins account is pretty explicitly a parody account. They are making a lot of posts making fun of, like, premarital sex culture. I'm sorry. I fully believe that there is a a practice like this. (laughs) Naomi's a BYU Virgins truther. I am a truther. So one of the questions you might raise is, what is dating actually about? Like, if you can't fully expect sex from these, if dating still exists and there's, like, some degree of scrutiny over young men and women going out in public, it seems hard, not impossible, but hard to, like, get up to hanky-panky. Yeah. Like, why is it that men are asking women out and, you know, engaging them in these activities? And one answer that Margaret Mead gave after World War II ended was that it's part of an American courtship ritual based on popularity. Dating, she stressed, was not about sex or adulthood or marriage. Instead, it was a competitive game and a way for girls and boys to demonstrate popularity. This was not a startling startling revelation to the American public because Americans knew that dating was centered on competition and popularity. These were the terms in which dating was discussed, the vocabulary in which one described a date. So in 1937, in a classic study on American dating, sociologist Willard Waller gave this competitive system a name, the campus rating complex. His study of Penn State detailed a dating and rating system based on very clear standards of popularity. To be popular, men needed outward material signs like an automobile, the right clothing, fraternity membership, and money. Women's popularity depended on building and maintaining a reputation for popularity. They had to be seen with popular men at the right places, indignantly turn down dozens of requests for dates made at the last minute, which could be weeks in advance, and cultivate the impression they were greatly in demand. So this was mostly in like American college youth where a lot of dating was taking place. That's not to say it wasn't happening in high schools, but that kind of thing did really come later after the 1940s and 50s. Um, But basically the idea was women are being accepted into colleges. Um, You know, they're meeting up with other women. They're forming, you know, uh, camaraderies, friendships, rivalries, whatever. And in order to get ahead at institutions, they wanted to be seen as popular. And that could be because maybe they weren't from the best family. And, you know, they wanted, you know, to not be thought of as, like, the poor kid. Could be because maybe they're from a more rural area. They didn't want to be thought of as, like, the small country bumpkin. But they competed through the medium of dates in order to be seen as someone who was, like, intrinsically valuable. So although Waller did not see it, the technique of image building was not always limited to women. For men, too, nothing succeeded like success. A guidebook for young men about town advised it's money in the bank to have lots of girls on the knowing list and the date calendar. It means more popularity for you. As proof, the author looked back on his own college days, recalling how a classmate won the title most popular man at a small co-ed college by systematically going through the college register and dating every girl in the school who wasn't engaged. At some schools, the system was particularly blatant. In early 1936, a group of women at the University of Michigan decided to rate the BMOCs, big men on campus, according to their dating value. Men had to have dated several women even to be considered for the list. Those qualified were rated either A, smooth, B, okay, C, pass in a crowd, D, semi-goon, or E, spook. 
When you said smooth, the first thing that got came to my mind was like if he had chest hair or not. <laughs> <laughs> ah, maybe, maybe that's it. The Michigan Daily reported that the lists were being used quite extensively by women to check the ratings of potential blind dates. This codification helped women to conform the peer judgments of dating value and also to gain some kind of power over the most powerful men. The concept of dating value has nothing to do with the interpersonal experience of a date. Whether or not that boy or girl, for that matter, was fun or charming or brilliant was irrelevant. Instead, the rating looked to others. Passing the crowd does not refer to any relationship between the couple, but to public perceptions of success in a popularity competition. Dating a spook could set you back, but the C rater would keep your place. It would keep you in circulation. So popularity is clearly key to popularity defined in a very specific way. It was not earned through talent, through looks, through personality or importance in organizations, but by the way these attributes translated in the dates. Dates had to be highly visible and with many different people or they didn't count. In the mid-1930s, for instance, Endicott Book for College Women compared a Northwestern University organization of campus widows who showed they were faithful to faraway lovers but wearing yellow ribbons around their necks and meeting to read letters and share mementos while others dated to women who stayed pinned to one man. The author made just one caveat. The widows stay home all the time, and the pin wearers at least have steady dates. One man was only marginally better than none. The ratings dating system and the definition of popularity in which it was based was not mostly restricted to college campuses. Originally, popular magazines and advice books had described it as a college phenomenon, but in the 1940s, a Women Home Companion article explained that the modern dating system, with no mention of college campuses, to its readers. If you have dates aplenty, you are asked everywhere. Dates are the hallmark of personality and popularity. No matter how pretty you are, how smart your clothes, or your tongue, if you have no dates, your rating is low. The modern girl cultivates not just one single suitor, but dates. Lots of them. Her aim is not to uh, an obvious romance, but to general popularity. I was struck while reading this about how much this reminds me of Facebook. How so? Because when people first started making Facebook accounts, one of the big things was to find as many people as possible who would friend you. Yes. Because you were more popular, obviously, if you knew more people who wanted to be acknowledged in your presence. Yes. And so I recall, you know, several people in high school were considered popular because they had, oh my God, 600 friends on Facebook, Naomi. Yeah. 600. I Did feel they know all 600 or were like Tangentially, you know, Nigerian family, princes. uncle, yeah. nieces, relatives, someone's parody dog account, you know, people they met at a speech and debate competition and never talked to again. Um, but yeah, that, that definitely was, I think, recreated. And there's still that idea in the early Facebook model of like, are you important? Do you have value? And the same thing is on LinkedIn. It's on a lot of other social networking sites, but it's been recreated in a lot of different ways. I find it really fascinating that you go from the system of calling, which is, again, a very private matter, yes. where it's like, doesn't matter what happens, it's inside the confines You're of the home. You're not publicly embarrassed. Yeah, yeah, to this very public ritual. Yeah. Um, that seems like a crazy, crazy reversal. And, you know, I gave some explanations for why that may have become, like, so popular, but uh, it's, it still kind of blows my mind, because that seems completely foreign, and I can totally understand how adults were just mystified at the time about why people would want to do it. But keep in mind that last quote I read you, which was like, it doesn't matter if you're pretty. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, popular. It, well, it doesn't matter, you know, if you, you have, like, a good family or prestige or you're smart. If you can meet people, you can be popular. And I think that might be where it lies, where, like, it's a thing you can have, even if you don't have anything else. Yeah. I think we talked about this in one of our early episodes. Uh, I was reading a Don DeLillo novel, Underworld, where he talks about sex. And he's like, for some people, sex is the best thing they can get. Right? They're never going to be famous. They're never going to be rich. They're never going to, you know, have the woman of their dreams. But they can have sex. It's yeah. a thing that you can feel, like, confident in, that you can feel comfortable in. And in a culture where you can't have sex, the next best thing is to just go out on a lot yeah. of dates. So high school students of the late 1930s and 40s then were raised on rating and dating. Uh, not only did they imitate the conventions of older youth, they were advised by young columnists, many of which were college students themselves, who spoke with distinctly non-parental voices, that these conventions were natural and right. Senior Scholastic, a magazine used in high schools all over the United States, began running an advice column in 1936. Boy Dates Girl. Written under the pseudonym... And I did a double take here multiple times when reading this name throughout okay. this book, Naomi. The advice column, Boy Dates Girl, written under the pseudonym Gay Head, quickly became the magazine's most popular feature. 
Gay Head's advice always <laughs> took the competitive system as a given. It's exactly how you think it'd be spelled. Okay. One word? Gay Head. Two words. Oh. She assumed that girls would accept any straightforward offer of a date if not already dated for the evening, and that boys in trying for the most popular girl imaginably possible would occasionally overreach themselves. She once warned girls never to brush off any boy, no matter how unappealing in a rude way, since he may come in handy for an off night. An advice column for the sub-debs in the Ladies Home Journal struck the same note. The columnist advised that shunning blind dates was as public proof of a slow social life was bad policy. Even if it is imperfect, she wrote, blind dates would help keep you in circulation. They're good press agents. They add to your collection. So teenagers, a little argument with this advice. Early debates on going steady in senior scholastic, which shows that some students at least wanted a single suitor, overwhelmingly rejected the steady date plan. Negative responses were blunt. If a girl goes steady, she loses her gift of gab. She doesn't need to compete with others of her species. Going steady is like buying the first car you see, only if the car has trade in, only a car has trade in value later on. One is a bore. I want more, said someone in California. A girl from Greensboro, North Carolina, summed it all up. Going steady with one date is okay if that's all you rate. So again, this idea of like monogamy in the sense of dating culture was non-existent. It's very foreign. Yeah, it's it's date as many people as you can to be popular. Yeah. There's also a process in dance halls, which was where a lot of dates would take place, of cutting in. And the idea was you'd invite a girl out onto the dance floor and you would occasionally allow other gentlemen to cut in, take your place dancing with her on the dance floor. Yeah. And for a woman... For a girl, the most devastating thing imaginable would be if a single boy invited her dance on the dance floor and no one else replaced him the whole evening. Ooh. Yeah. And so they, they, there were a couple of stories they shared from different magazines about, you know, girls who were just absolutely devastated. Getting stuck meant simply not getting cut in on. Gradually, the woman's smile on the dance floor grow brittle and desperate. The man would begin casting beseeching looks at possible rescuers. Everyone would notice. This image haunted young women and certainly kept young men from asking girls to dance who had not already and undeniably proven their popularity. It was taken quite seriously as a sign of social failure. A 1933 advice book told the story of a girl who, upon catching her partner waving a dollar bill behind her back as an inducement to cut in, offered, make it five and I'll go home. More seriously, the author added, to be popular to dance required the endurance of a Spartan and the training of a Southerner. A college student writing for Mademoiselle advised, keep smiling if it kills you. And a mother writing in Harper's on the accomplishments she expected of her daughter, sandwiched, faced the brutality of stag lines at parties, between passing college board examinations in chemistry, French, and Latin, and being able to change a tire. This form of brutality would change dramatically. By the early 1950s, cutting in had actually completely disappeared outside the Deep South. In 1955, a student at Texas Christian reported to cut in is almost an insult. A girl in Green Bay, Wisconsin, said her parents were astonished when they discovered she hadn't danced with anyone but her escort at a formal. The truth was, she admitted, I wasn't aware we were supposed to. This 180-degree reversal took place quickly during the years of World War II, and so was complete. Well, and was so complete by the early 1950s that people under 18 could be totally unaware of the formerly powerful convention. It was a huge change in dating etiquette, but a complete transformation of the dating system as well. Definitions of social success is Definitions of social success as promiscuous popularity based on strenuous competition had given way to new definitions, which located success in the security of a dependable escort. So we go from a system in the 1930s where it's like, hey, if you're popular, lots of boys are going to ask you to dance, and that's totally fine. That's how you show you're the belle of the ball. And if no one asks you to dance, you're a failure and you suck. You have to think critically about, like, how to improve yourself as a person and be more popular. Yes. But then in the 50s, that changes. Do you have any thoughts about why that might change? Um, I'm assuming because of, um, World War II, there was a, um, fewer amount of men to choose from. And then when you get to that point, then it's like, oh, I can only have this one because there's no other options. And then also everybody already has a partner to dance with on the dance floor when you go out, um, during World War II. So it's like, there's no picking and choosing and there's no tradesies. That's an interesting, yeah, no, that's that's pretty accurate. I think I spoiled a little bit of it for you earlier. But no, those are some good assumptions that um, match up pretty closely to what the author is saying. So cutting in was a convention originally based on a sociological reality. In a society where men outnumbered women, it had provided an ordered and civilized way to, sh- way to share access to women. 
So again, women being in college is not the norm at these times. Yeah. So the likelihood that you're going to have like gender equality at a school is pretty crazy. Yeah. Most likely it's going to be 10, 20% women. So there's going to be a lot more men than women. Okay. So cutting in not only is a measure of popularity, it's also a way for like men to be able to date lots of women. Yeah. It's kind of a sociological practice. Um, so women are very much like a prized commodity. But during a period of time when men disappear because they're not in college, because yeah. they're off fighting a war, things change dramatically. So after World War II, for the first time, women outnumbered men in the United States. Statistically, there weren't enough guys, neat or otherwise, to go around. A dating system that had valued popularity above all was unsettled by women's concerns about the new scarcity of men. This is for a couple of reasons. Obviously, there are men fighting abroad, but there, there, there are other problems such as German women seeing more exotic and there are... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We talked about this during the um, History of Dating episode. Yes, 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 we did. So I, I'm going to skip over a section, which is a bunch of colleges fighting back and forth about whose men are more attractive okay. and how, like, the women at certain schools obviously must be unattractive because they can't get dates for a formal. But let, let's talk a little bit about Europe and how the, the troops sort of changed their perceptions of what they wanted over there. So statistics show that the future happiness of American womanhood was threatened. As early as June 1945, a New York Times Magazine article began, with half the war won, men are coming home to America, but not enough of them. The author quoted the optimistic view that approximately 750,000 women who wanted to marry would have to live alone and warned the psychiatrists and warned that psychiatrists all agreed that these women would become neurotic and frustrated because women cannot ignore biological laws without damaging themselves. Good Housekeeping captioned a photo of a bride and groom descending church staff with, she's got a man, but six to eight million won't. We're short one million bachelors. The accompanying article began, male shortage, it's worse than ever. So there were reasons given for the male shortage. Fewer male babies were conceived and born alive, and they had a higher rate of infant mortality than female babies. More adult men held stressful or dangerous jobs than women, and men had higher rates of fatal disease or accident. The ratio of men to women had always been artificially inflated in America by the great influx of immigrants, the greatest proportion of them men. America was beginning to see the effects of tightened immigration laws. So, you know, racism didn't help. Of course, the war hadn't helped matters. Most of the alarmist articles nodded towards the immigration explanation and skirted the war-death issue. No one was graceless enough to complain about the 250,000 men who died in the war, thus depriving equal number of women of lifelong companionship. Instead, the authors pointed to an explanation more in keeping with the competitive system of American courtship. Foreign women were stealing American men! By 1946, in spite of red tape, 50,000 American GIs had married English women, and Australian girls had led 10,000 or more up the aisle. French, Belgian, and other foreign women had claimed another 30,000 men who should have been potential husbands for American women. Their rivalry with British and French women was strong enough for strident, but German women, as one American wrote later, were the final insult. In response to stories about the many American men who were deserting their girlfriends or wives and families for German frauleins, women demanded action. In 1945, 70% of American women under 30 believed American soldiers should not be allowed to date German women. In one U.S. city, a group of women organized to pressure army authorities to prevent military men from marrying foreign wives. The army did issue non-fraternization rules for American GIs in Germany. Soldiers caught with German women could be given fines ranging from $65 to $325, or six months hard labor. Officers could be court-martialed and discharged. However... Life magazine showed German women luring American men with seductive poses and scanty clothing, noting that the GIs greeted German girls with, Good day, child, since the non-fraternization rules did not apply to children. Within a few months, authorities had eased the ban to allow soldiers to walk with girls in public places, but not to visit them in their homes or bring them to their own quarters. So they're very mad at all of these um, women taking what they think are their men. And when the troops come back, they begin complaining about what college women are interested in. So these troops are coming back, and they're either dating college women or they're entering college and becoming college students themselves. Uh, one University of Texas veteran, obviously not pla placated by women, called on his quick, sobering maturity and the sweeping education of war travels to complain about Texas women. The college girl, he said, expected too much and gave little in return. She makes no attempt at being a good date or trying to show the boy who's willing to spend his time, money, and efforts in obtaining her company that she is appreciative. Angry exchanges in student newspapers often boiled down to one issue. Veterans claimed they simply wanted women, not girls. What did they mean by that? 
Well, they had been released from the domination of American women by discovering they were romantic heroes to the rest of the world's women. After that, how could they return to the bobby soxy, chicken poxy, small fry, hope to die, swooning type of adoration that was all American girls had to offer? An Esquire article on the same theme provoked 2,200 women to write the author. Many portrayed the depth of the misunderstandings by enclosing photographs as proof, saying, Not me, I'm cute. So what did they mean by this exactly? What did they mean by American girls were girls and not women? Well, American girls couldn't compare to foreign women, wrote Victor Delaire, a foreign correspondent for Stars and Stripes. Delaire said he'd heard more complaints from American women over the lack of nylons than he'd heard from European women over the destruction of their homes and the deaths of their men. Moreover, he declared, the European women really were women. While American girls tried to compete with men, insisting on a full share of the conversation with their escorts, French girls let their escorts do the talking, seeming to be there for the sole purpose of being pleasant to the men. Unlike American girls, European girls were interested in the rather fundamental business of getting married, having children, and making the best homes their means or conditions would allow. What does Bobby mean? I don't know. <laughs> That's what all you've been thinking about? What does chicken poxy mean? Yeah. It's a, I don't know, turn of phrase from the time. What, what, what do you think about all of that? It makes sense. Kind of confused because when I view the past in that time period, I think like, oh, these men are coming home to attract like feminine women. Like they're looking for that like, oh, well, my nylons, you know what I mean? Because that's how it was portrayed in the media at that time. Well, well, he's saying men aren't attracted to that because American women haven't had lived experiences. No, and that's what I'm saying is like, it's portrayed in the media at that time when you're watching movies from that time period that men are looking for feminine women who are like a damsel in distress. Mm-hmm. So it's strange that you say that. You know, what I just thought about our grandpa married a German woman after war too. Yeah. It's weird. You bring that up, Naomi. <laughs> huh? I bet she didn't complain about the lack of nylons. <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't think these are universal experiences, but you can certainly understand like how that would impact things. And I guess we can wrap this up here today by, you know, just saying the impact this had on marriage in the United States was that women were a lot more desperate to get married. Yeah. Because there was this perception that like they wouldn't be able to due to a lack of men. Yeah. And so they were willing to settle for probably less than they might have wanted out of a husband, which will have impacts moving forward. But if you think about it, it also is putting the power in men's hands. I mean, formerly they had the power in the dating system. Yes. Now they have the power in the marriage game too. Yes. Because there's less of them. They're a precious commodity. Women are, you know, fighting, you know, tooth and nail in order to get the best. So the author says marriage rates for Americans, the, the, the average age dropped pretty dramatically as a result. This uh-huh. was a trend across the world. It wasn't unique to America, but it definitely changed American culture as well. Um, so in 1890, the average age at marriage had been 26.1 for men and 22 for women. 26 for men, 22 for women. Yes. In 1951, men were marrying an average age of 22.6, women at 20.4. Well, we talked about that in one of our last books, a book in the history of dating, I'm pretty sure we talked mm-hmm. about this, or history of marriage, where the reason for that was because the rise of a wedding, uh, the rise of a, the cost of wedding went up during the depression, mm-hmm. of course. But then after World War II, everyone was like, oh, well, there's going to be, like, life is so precious. I've lost my loved ones to this war. I have to get married now. Yeah. So what we've talked about in this episode basically boils down to this. There used to be this convention of calling. Calling went away as a result of urbanization, poor people starting to date because they couldn't afford this practice, rich people adopting it, eventually that trickling down the middle class. All this is being disseminated in magazines and media of the time. So all these like ideas are being disseminated and spread pretty quickly. Even someone writing an article where they're like, this behavior is socially unacceptable makes the behavior more commonly known. And the author talks about this multiple times. She's like, look, this guy is decrying, you know, the practice of necking or whatever. Uh But by the very fact he's writing an article about necking, he's letting people know other people are doing necking, which makes it more socially acceptable. Yeah. So, like, these ideas disseminate whether or not people in positions of power and authority want them to disseminate. So we go from calling to dating. Dating gives more power to men than it did to women. Uh Women are thought more of as commodities. And one way they sort of redefine their existence is focused around popularity, where the more dates you can get, the better. But that reverses pretty quickly due to World War II, where because there's a shortage of men, things change, and women now 
feel that they have to pursue men and settle for men uh, much faster in order to secure a husband and like the ideal life talked about in media. Yes. It's quite a whirlwind. And we're not even through like half of this history she's painting between the 1920s and 1965. There's a lot more developments that get much weirder. Well. Are you excited? I'm excited. Do you see why I enjoy this yeah, book? Yeah, it's a, you it's have a such solid amazing book. Anecdotes. Yeah, it's such a good book. We're like, going to hear more from Gay Head, I promise you. <laughs> That's a pretty good one. So, uh, Joel, is there anything that you'd like to add in before we finish up this episode? Anyone who's listened to this episode to the conclusion might notice some weird gaps and pauses <laughs> in the editing. Uh, that is because Naomi and I have both been coughing and wheezing throughout this episode. Uh, we've been doing our best to cover it up, but uh, yes, that will probably make it through despite our best intents. Um, let l- We just need you to know, dear listener, we do this all for you. We don't think of our health. We, we fight to deliver you a, a high-quality product every week, and hopefully that shows. Well, we hope you enjoyed the sound of our coughing and wheezing. We hope you have a great week. Don't cough and wheeze. Um, We're getting close to the holiday season. Just a heads up, uh, we will be sending out holiday cards for our Patreon members pretty soon. So you might want to subscribe now. If you subscribe now, we might be able to send you some high-quality, one-of-a-kind artwork being commissioned just for this season. Uh, What is it of? Probably us, but you're (laughs) listening to us, so that must mean you like us, which means you'll love the card in turn. We hope you have a great week. Um, tune in next week for a part two. And regardless of what we say, Steve Harvey is not redeemed by this book. Peace, y'all.